Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 276, I'm joined by three doctors to discuss several trauma-related articles. This includes Dr. Fosco Oretta from Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Yoshi Yonakawa from Wills Eye Hospital Medical and Retina, and Dr. Kimberly Tran from Sanford School of Medicine at the University of South Dakota. We review recently published articles on the mechanisms and uh, demographics of open globe injuries in the United States. We also talk about self-injurious behavior and Dr. Yonakawa's paper about the detachments associated with self-injurious behavior. And we end with the discussion of a recent paper regarding the recent uh, protests and the rubber bullet injuries associated with that regarding eye injuries. Remember, you can claim CMA credits for this podcast and many other podcast episodes by clicking on the uh, AAO link in the episode description. That will take you to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website where members can claim CME credits. Usually it's about a half credit per episode. And remember, a list of relevant financial disclosures are listed in the episode description. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by three of our colleagues from around the country. First, in an east-to-west fashion, uh, we're going to start in Baltimore, Maryland, where we're joined by Dr. Fosca Warreta from the Wilmer Eye Institute, part of Johns Hopkins University. Fosca, welcome. Thank you, Jay. Next, in pseudo-alphabetical order, but not really, uh, we're moving kind of in a northwesterly direction. We have Dr. Yoshi Unakawa of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Mid-Atlantic Retina and Will's Eye Hospital. Yoshi, welcome. Thanks, Jay, very much for having me back. And last but not least, we have our one non-East Coast uh, time zone renegade. Uh, first appearance on the program, Dr. Kim Tran um, from uh, South University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine in um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Kim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jay. So this is going to be very similar to our traditional Journal Club podcast, but rather than just focusing on articles published in the last month, we're going to talk about an article published in the last month, but talk in general about trauma. And trauma is something we don't talk about enough maybe on this podcast, uh, but it's relevant to all ophthalmologists, including retina specialists. And so we're going to use these articles as kind of jumping off points to discuss some bigger topics. But let's start with the article. So the first article we're going to discuss, and we're more than privileged to have uh, the senior author on this podcast with us, is called Characteristics of Open Globe Injuries in the United States from 2006 to 2014. This was published in Journal Ophthalmology in January of 2020, and Dr. Fosca Loretta was senior author with Tahir Tarim Mir as the uh, first author. Fosca, you, no one better on this podcast to tell us a little bit about this study. What was the goal? What, how did you guys kind of conduct it, and what did the results show? Yes. So, yes, we were interested in looking at this because we see, see quite a number of open globe injuries at Wilmer each year, so we wanted to look at it at a national level. So we used the nationwide emergency department sample which is the largest all-payer ED database in, in the U.S., and it does contain um, 20, a 20% sample of hospitals across the U.S., so, um, you know, good representation. So we looked at those with the diagnosis of open globe injury from 2016 to 2014, a primary diagnosis. And so we were interested in looking at incidents as well as, you know, mechanisms of injury, which, you know, are important for sort of public health uh, preventative measures. And so what found was that um, the incidence was about 4.5 per 100,000 population. And over the course of the study, it um, steadily decreased. 
5.3 per month, which is good. Um, we found most injuries, as we know, occur in male. About 75% were male and 30% were low, had low socioeconomic status. And then for mechanisms of injury, we found that um, the most common mechanism was being struck by a person or object, followed by uh, a, a laceration with a cutting or piercing object. And then one really important uh, thing that we found was that um, really all mechanisms sort of stayed stable except for falls. And um, falls is a mechanism of injury that was, we found was increasing um, during our study period. And it was the most common mechanism of injury in the elderly. So it was responsible for over 50% of open globe injuries in patients over 70 and um, more common in females as well. And then finally, we looked at the cost of open globe injuries in the ED and the um, um, inpatient hospitalizations and found it was uh, quite costly at 800 million and that cost incre you know, increased significantly during the study period. Terrific. And, and again, uh, this, this is a Journal Club podcast, just to point out some limitations to this type of analysis, obviously based on a database, there's certain characteristics not captured by this database, including this didn't really look at visual acuity or, or severity of injury. And we also know that this is based on coding. So we always have to assume with any database or retrospective database study that things were coded correctly. Um, Yoshi, I, you know, I think there's many fascinating things to, to unpack here. Bosco did a great job summing it up. But I would start, you know, this idea of fall-related injuries, one of the big things that seems to be on the rise. And it correlates with a increase in an older population in our country. We've seen what those sort of ripple effects meant for different countries, coronavirus, for example. And it's one of these standard things that we in ophthalmology see a lot of these patients who have maybe fall risk due to their vision. I mean, how do you kind of factor that in? What sort of ideas does that give us for what we should be doing maybe as a field, not just as ophthalmologists, maybe as physicians? I mean, we've all heard the sad story of the older patient who falls, hits their head on a table corner or something of that ilk and ends up rupturing the globe, sometimes even through a previous surgery wound. Yeah, great point. So I thought this paper was really fantastic, and it provides such a nice overview of uh, open globe injuries in our country. And that was one of the things that struck me also, why all related injuries are increasing. I also thought probably because the population is aging. Um, and, you know, these are very severe injuries because they tend to be globe ruptures rather than lacerations. So I think that outcomes tend to be poor, and it's, uh, there's a higher likelihood of posterior segment complications also. And these are relatively older patients. And so their outcomes tend to be worse also, um, whether it's globe-related or renal detachments also. And so I think it's something important. And another sort of related thing that I um, uh, thought was really interesting was that globe injuries are pretty common, like 4.5 or 5 per 100,000 people. Uh, just to put things into perspective, um, retinal detachment in the general population is about 10 per 100,000 similar with macular holes, similar with uh, vitreous hemorrhage. And these are things that we see all the time. And um, so globe injuries are more common than I think we as retinal specialists think they are. And thankfully, these cases are kind of spread throughout the community. And patients with globes usually present to emergency room and the on-call uh, ophthalmologist will fix it, as opposed to a lot of retina issues that tend to get funneled from a wider geographic catchment area. Absolutely. Yeah. Great, really great points. You know, Kim, I, I think it's also interesting to look at, we, if you look at motor vehicle accidents, for example, they kind of fell as a cause and 
you know, Foskin obviously did a good job citing, well, this is an example maybe where maybe public policy helped in terms of seatbelts and, and kind of airbags, but we still see this firearms still a big cause. I mean, we, you've seen plenty of those, unfortunately, in your time, both in training in Miami and now. I'm sure you've seen some injuries like that in South Dakota. In terms of other big things to take from the paper, I think mechanistically we can look at a few things. And I think one of the, we can kind of spin this off away from the paper after kind of talking about anything we want to talk about from this paper is one of the relevant things to retina specialists is the concomitant diagnosis, right? So they kind of looked at the concomitant diagnoses. You know, things that would be very relevant to us would be vitreous hemorrhage, retinal detachment, choroidal hemorrhage, choroidal detachment. Um, what are kind of your general rules? You know, open globe is seen. Obviously, you want to get primary closure. What are kind of your general rules for for managing that in the post-closure phase? Sure. So I think most importantly is kind of to get the family on board and kind of understanding what kind of the next steps are. This isn't kind of just your, you know, one surgery and you're done, um, but kind of letting them know that this is going to be kind of a drawn out process. A lot of the time, you know, that B scan on that first exam is very difficult to interpret in the setting of a ruptured globe. You're trying not to push too hard. You're going through kind of an endemitous lid. Um, and then as you follow that B scan over time, you know, just deciding when to go into that eye. Typically, I will try and wait, you know, a solid week before going in, even in the setting of a detachment, just to give kind of those um, scleral rupture sites uh, some time for the tenons to fuse over it, um, to give myself a little bit of an easier time during the vitrectomy. I find that um, giving myself that extra week, sometimes I'll put on oral steroids as well to kind of see if I can get the choroidal detachments to um, to kind of shallow out or decrease in size. Um, and that really helps me out during the vitrectomy. I find that in eyes that, you know, you push all the way out three, four weeks after ruptured globe, trying to go back in and do a retinal detachment. Sometimes I find that that PVR cycle has already started and it just becomes, you know, a very difficult case to salvage. Um, so my typical kind of window for going back in and trying to fix a retinal detachment is usually around that one to two week after um, primary closure. And I think that's an area of a lot of debate. Yoshi, you, you worked extensively with Dean Elliott in your time at Mass Pioneer, and Dean's a big advocate for kind of going earlier in the window than most traditionally advocated. Do you kind of agree with Kim's approach for these cases? Um, and, it, and I think one of the hardest things, and Kim, you referenced this, is sometimes it's really difficult in these patients after globe closure to assess the vitreous hemorrhage versus retinal detachment. I think that ultrasounds are just, and it's been published on this, are just less reliable sometimes because the anatomy is so distorted. Any, any thoughts, Yoshi, from your perspective and how retina specialists can manage these patients? Because a lot of times we don't even do the primary closure if you're out in the community, but you'll be referred to these patients after they're closed because of secondary potential retinal issues. Oh, absolutely. It's a very interesting um, conversation. And I agree that the B-scan can be challenging. Uh, often, I, I don't do a B-scan on initial presentation. I just close the globe. Um, but even afterwards, uh, immediately postoperatively, I think um, B-scanning is important, but it can be difficult to interpret. And if it's difficult to interpret, there's probably a lot of blood, and it's not it, things are not going well in the back of the eye. And I tend to want to go in early. But early as in, you know, we uh, on the retina service, we prefer patients to be referred to us very soon after the globe closure, not like, let's see how the vitreous hemorrhage clears are, you know, we want to see them right away. And so I think referral to retina early is important. And in terms of timing to go in, it's really interesting because I was just having a debate with uh, Marcus Collier 
and Grant Justin. And Grant's a resident going into uh, Retina and a uh, big advocate for trauma-related topics. And uh, I personally do like to wait that one or 10 days usually max or maybe two weeks max. Uh, but a lot of papers are also showing that uh, outcomes are better if you go in immediately afterwards. Um, I personally, based on previous experiences of having to go into the eye very early, whether it was for an IOFD or other emergent issue, I think that the blood can be really sticky and it's almost like PVR membrane really stuck together, where if you waited a couple of days more, all of that kind of melts away and it's easier to accomplish the surgical sure. and anatomic goals. So that's my personal preference, um, not waiting too long, but not going in too early. Yeah, and I, I think there's other issues to address about going early. Are your wounds going to be watertight in the case of a posterior rupture? Maybe you didn't get full closure. Can you, you have to wait for someone of a seal? You don't want to be putting an infusion in the eye and not having good control of the pressure because a wound is leaking. I think there's this idea, you talked about the stickiness. And, and then if you have any sort of choroidal blood or anything in the choroid, sometimes that will settle down better and give you better access versus operating kind of in this tunnel when you kind of don't have much room to work because it choroidals. And if you do end up using a tamponade, you end up with incomplete fill with the choroidals. Um, so it's all kind of balancing each of these. You know, Fosca, kind of last point on this topic, and we can transition to the next paper. What about, you know, you, you, you've, you through your experience at Wilmer and now, you know, educating kind of your trainees. I mean, we teach our trainees certain principles, but there are many in the community who don't have these cases very often. From an anterior segment perspective, what are kind of the important principles? We kind of, speaking from a retina perspective, hey, we want the wounds closed, we want this, we want that. But what are kind of the most important principles, You just going back to basics, that you try to teach your residents and fellows? Yes, Jay. So I think suturing is a, is a little bit of a lost art because with cataract surgery nowadays, we don't suture as much. So I think practicing suturing um, as a resident, knowing how to um, you know, do but proper suturing is, is critical in the closure of open globe injuries, and it does make a difference in the outcome. So I think, um, you know, practice, practice, practice. And then, I, 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 you know, I do, I do think our residents go to the practice lab early on, and, and they start doing open globe surgeries. That's one of the first surgeries they start doing. And, and so I think it's really important to practice. And I think in terms of the suture um, depth, it, you can either go 90% or 100%. So I do find that Sometimes it's challenging for them when there's a complex laceration to, to sort of get 90%. So 100% is fine. And it does allow for, um, you know, the cornea to clear maybe even a little bit faster. And there's some retina uh, surgeons who really like the 100% instead of the 90%, like Farron Kuhn, sort of the father of ocular trauma, always um, advocates for 100% because it basically stops the egress of aqueous. And he thinks the retina, uh, you get a better view to the retina as it clears faster. And then you just have to remember when you're removing those stitches, it is a full thickness removal. So you want to use beta guides. So I just think practicing the suturing, not making them too tight, knowing how to, um, I, I always try to plan the surgery before we start in the case of complex lacerations. Like we're going to get the angle first, limbal structures and having a plan of attack. And so those, that's what I usually recommend for them. But I think every general ophthalmologist um, or every, any ophthalmologist should know the basics of closing an, uh, an open globe injury. Beautiful. And, you know, I'll say that try to get as much close as possible. And you maybe to introduce a little controversy, switching back to the retina side, Kim and Yoshi. And I'll let Kim go first. Comments on prophylactic buckling is you know, something that people have talked about putting a buckle on in these cases for posterior ruptures. Kim, is this something that you recommend? In what cases do you recommend it? Uh, any tips for doing it if you are going to do it? You know, um, it's something that I've, I've spoken with, you know, with my co-chiefs about, and 
you know, of those who have done it, they say, you know, they, they were happy to do it, but I've never heard of it being, you know, an easy thing. So um, I personally have never done it in the setting of a ruptured globe. Um, but if I were to do it, you know, suturing rather than doing scleral tunnels, obviously to um, decrease the manipulation of the globe um, would be kind of the key point to, to think about there. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I feel it's a little bit like that OJ Simpson book he, he wrote a few years ago, not to go off topic where he's like, I didn't do it, but if I had done it, this is how I would have done it. Uh, because I haven't done yeah. it either. And, um, and Yoshi, I want to get your thoughts. Have you done this? And, and if you do what, why do you do it? Why do you think it's beneficial? Yeah. So I thought about it a lot because we talk about it a lot, right, but right. I don't think many people, uh, do much of it at all. And so, I think the best paper describing this was in the 90s. Uh, first author was George Arroyo. And it was basically um, the experience at Mass Einier where people didn't do prophylactic buckles versus at Duke where he did his fellowship where prophylactic buckles were being placed before and Duke had better outcomes. And I personally don't do it because things are messy. You have choroidals, choroidals, uh, you know, everything is just injected. You can mush things around more. Uh, uh, it's not, you know, everything's not controlled well. I feel like you can potentially do more damage. And um, however, I think that if you have a situation where the uh, globe is relatively well controlled by a laceration, you know, that affects zone three and you know there's going to be a detachment, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. Uh, but usually when the posterior segment is uh, ruptured, like we talked about earlier about with uh, fault-related injuries, it's quite a mess. You just have to suture up and then uh, come back another day. Yeah, that, that's often been my experience as well. Well, let's talk about what can happen. The reason people put on these buckles is to prevent retinal detachment. So Yoshi, let's switch to one of your papers. Let's talk about this paper that has been published in Ophthalmology Retina, Traumatic Retinal Detachment in Patients with Self-Injurious Behavior. This is an international multicenter study. Elizabeth Rawson was the primary author of that long author list, did a great job collaborating across countries and across the, this country as well. Yoshi, tell us a little bit about this study and what were kind of the big take-home points. Yeah, so this is a very memorable study, and a lot of our, our studies in general, I think, are inspired based on unique patient encounters. And for me, the backstory here is that um, I had a patient with a teenage child with self-injurious behavior soon after fellowship as a, as a new attending. And the teenager presented with one eye with a severe PBR detachment. Not the craziest PBR detachment, but legit great C with, you know, multiple folds. And the other eye had multiple anterior breaks, the kind of, the kind of um, breaks you get from repetitive trauma, including vigorous eye rubbing. And so I think normally a lot of us, would do uh, a buccal vitrectomy, membrane PO, possible retinectomy, and oil for a severe PBR detachment. But for these patients, many of them cannot position. You can't examine them afterwards. You can't get an IOP. And a lot of times, you can't even do drops. So I think vitrectomy-based surgeries are very high risk, especially you know, if you can't position, you can get pupillary block glaucoma. You can't do drops, higher endophthalmitis risk. You can't check IOP, then you're likely to have undetected IOP elevation and all these causes for potentially rapidly losing the eye. And so for that first eye with the PVR detachment, I just did a primary buckle. And thankfully it worked. And remember that in the pre-vitrectomy era, the surgical success rate for uh, even these eyes, PVR detachments was around 50%. And so the other eye, 
uh, I did something controversial. So I wanted something very durable because usually the self-interest behavior continues. Normally, I would do laser during the UA, but uh, here we did a prophylactic scleral buckle. And uh, that's uh, pretty controversial, I think. And so far, it's done pretty well, but I wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do. And so I think when you think you did something right, but there's not much literature out there, what I personally do is I call my collaborators and we just write a paper about it. And so <laughs> this was an international uh, multi-center study. I think there's like 20-something centers looking at over 100 eyes from about 80 patients. And uh, big kudos to uh, Lizzie Rawson. She's currently a fellow at Massanier who did a, a great job collecting and analyzing the data and to uh, all the collaborators. These are tough cases. And so some notable findings. Uh, severe autism was the most common cause for the self-injurious traumatic behavior. Uh, we also saw patients with uh, face hitting, vigorous eye rubbing, and head banging. We had three years of follow-up on average. So that was good follow-up. And the single su surgery's anatomic success rate was 23% with no tamponade. So it's terrible. If, you, if it's okay with oil in the eye, it was 37%. But this was some of the lowest surgical success rates in the entire literature. And these are really tough cases. And the final reattachment rate, which normally should be close to 100% with typical detachments, it was 36% final reattachment without any tamponade. If having oil in the eye was okay with retina attached, it was 80%. And so um, if patients had scleral buckle with the first surgery or at any point, those patients tended to, uh, they had better outcomes. Patients who had more PVR and funnel configurations of the detachment, as you can imagine, had the worst outcomes. Vision did improve overall, so it's worth fixing these eyes, although uh, about uh, 10 to 15% of eyes were deemed inoperable. And so... Um, the eyes with prophylactic laser and prophylactic buckle, there were a couple of them did very well. Uh, however, the eyes that underwent laser barricade of the detachments, they progressed and needed surgery. And so my takeaways from this uh, paper was that one, these are very challenging cases. And two, uh, our data shows that you want to consider a buckle earlier on. Well, I'm going to say what everyone else in this call is thinking. Fasca is like, I'm very glad I'm not a retina specialist. And Kim and I are thinking we're very glad we don't necessarily take care of many of these cases because these are extremely challenging and this is a phenomenal job. Uh, kudos to you, Yoshi, and kudos to the other authors for taking care of these patients. I mean, these are just tough situations. Um, again, I'm biased and I think Kim would be too because um, we both got mentored by Nina Barakal, um, and she's one of the co-authors in the paper and she also is someone who's taught me there is value to a prophylactic buckle, though it, it seems that it is controversial. Um, just important limitations to point out. This is, again, a non-consecutive case series, right? So there may be recall bias. Very small sample size in, per site. And then there's a lot of heterogeneity because of that. And, you know, there's still Sorry. there's still value to all this, right? Um, I think that, like you said, that literature didn't exist. Now it does. And I think that will be interesting to see as we go forward in the future. Uh, that I think that my... Thing I'm gut for these types of cases is similar to trauma or any high risk kind of cases to throw the kitchen sink. I think it makes a lot of sense to do anything possible in situations where exams might be hard, as you said, might be difficult, and there's you know risk for further injury in the future. Um, Kim, any any thoughts on this paper? Um, no, I think you know 
again, just major kudos to, you know, Yoshi and, and Elizabeth and kind of all the authors in collaborating this. I think, you know, whether or not we are the primary surgeons in these eyes, you know, we've all encountered these eyes sooner or later somewhere in our course of training or in our careers and sharing them. I think that, you know, it is valuable to add to the literature because, you know, these parents oftentimes will ask very valid questions of, you know, why are we taking my kid back to the OR? Is this worth it? You know, we have so many other medical issues to juggle. Is it really worth it to go back for this? Um, and so I think just giving them kind of some idea and some perspective of what, you know, other kids like their own child looks like and, and what kind of that prognosis looks like. I think it's very helpful to these families in terms of giving them peace. And then I thought that the point of the silicone oil was very interesting, you know, because I live in kind of a underserved area. Now I'm inheriting a lot of these kids that have had surgery, you know, many years ago with oil in the back for many, many years. And, you know, we don't know what has happened back there. And families will come to me asking, you know, is it time for this oil to come out? The band keratopathy is starting. Um, and so I think having, you know, this literature to lean on and say, you know, these are the outcomes when you remove with and without oil and kind of adding to that decision-making process, um, it will be very helpful. Well, awesome paper, Yoshi. Again, kudos to the whole group. Let's transition to our last paper, uh, lest we lose Fosica, uh, who's just, again, wondering, maybe she did make the best choice of her career choosing cornea over retina. So let's, let's transition. I, actually, Jay, I, I had a question because I do see at Wilmer, we do get referrals for patients. And like, I think being in the trauma business, we're all about prevention, early detection. So in these cases, what I mean, the EUA, so, you know, a lot of times my resident will bring me a patient and say, okay, when is it time to put them under EUA? Because, you know, putting them under anesthesia is also not, you know, a benign thing and, you know, sometimes traumatic. So should we be doing EUAs um, on a regular basis for these patients, like every, you know, every five years, um, even every year? What do, what do you think, uh, Yoshi? Um, I think that a lot of times these kids present to us very late. A typical scenario is, uh, they lose one eye, but no one really realizes it. And then when their second eye goes and detaches, their visual behavior changes. Mm-hmm. And then they get a CT scan because they think that's a neurological issue, and then they see the detachment. And these also these patients also, almost always, they have traumatic cataracts. So I was actually interested in learning uh, about your thoughts about how to work on traumatic cataracts in these scenarios. But I think early uh, detection is important. And... Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree that, you know, EUAs, you can't do them multiple times in a university hospital setting. It's nice to do a, uh, uh, a multi-departmental type of EUA. With, uh, these kids usually have other medical issues also. And so for Optimali, you to kind of jump in there uh, to kind of do a quick exam when that happens is really nice. Because as, as you can imagine, it's also very challenging to put these kids to sleep. And so... I always touch base with anesthesia beforehand. Um, and uh, also, as Kim was mentioning, uh, having that therapeutic alliance with the family is very important. But I think another very important piece here is that we have to work with the behavioral therapists to try to decrease the self-injurious behavior because mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. biggest risk factor. Yeah. Easier said than done, though, that part. Yep. Vasco, this is great. You've got three retina specials. You can ask us whatever you want. <laughs> no, I think I think that was great. I mean, like you said, they they also develop cataracts, and I usually ask the family, like, do you notice a change in behavior? But in these cases, in this retina cases, and you know, this is a really eye-opening article because, like you said, 
we should know that for the self-injurious behavior, the risk of um, RDs and, and, and not doing well is, is high. So like you said, if they're undergoing an EUA for something else, then, you know, an ophthalmology exam may be warranted. So, you know, again, kudos to you and the team at Yoshi for bringing, you know, bringing light to an important issue in, in this population. Well, let's transition to this last paper, which was published very recently and very relevant. Ophthalmic injuries by less lethal kinetic weapons during the U.S. George Floyd protests in spring 2020. This is a research letter published in uh, JAMA Ophthalmology December 3rd online. Kim, you're going to tell us a little bit about this paper. And I think this is a super critical paper. No matter where you start, sit on the political spectrum, if you are a physician, this is something important to be aware of and, and kind of assess. So, Kim, tell us a little bit about what they did and, and what they showed. Sure. So um, the authors surveyed 115 ophthalmology program directors asking about the incidence and type of ophthalmic injuries related to less lethal weapons used during the George Floyd protests um, in June and July of 2020. Um, 82 program directors responded, or 71%, and 22 programs, or 27%, reported having treated ophthalmic injuries related to the protests. The authors identified 41 kinetic impact projectile injuries, um, and the most common injuries included orbital fracture, ruptured globe, and hyphema. Um, and the authors wanted to highlight out of kind of this cohort of patients that there is, you know, significant long-term morbidity associated with these less lethal weapons, which include things like rubber bullets, pepper balls, foam grenades, um, and really encourage you know, one, healthcare providers to reach out to protest leaders or community leaders to educate on the importance of wearing, you know, ballistic eye protection, as well as to kind of our law enforcement and um, to kind of make sure that they follow the written guidelines of kind of not aiming near vulnerable organs, not above the neck, towards the eyes, you know, being a safe distance away from, from other people when deploying these weapons. Um, so, you know, very, a very timely article, I think, with everything that has gone on this year and um, important to kind of highlight the morbidity associated with these with these kinetic projectile weapons. Perfect. And, and Fasica, I mean, this is again, you have a role. Uh, we'll give a little plug for ASOT um, and we can talk a little bit about that. But obviously, trauma is a very important, relevant part of your interests clinically and research wise. Obviously, there's some, some limitations in terms of you don't know exactly what people were shot with. This is based on patient descriptions and photos. Identification can be really difficult. And this was just a survey, right? So there's limitations there. But big takeaways, Fosca, from this and things that are relevant for, for ophthalmologists. What do you think are kind of the biggest things you learned from this paper? Um, and I think this study uh, and Yoshi study really is the, it shows the importance of looking at, you know, multi-center studies in trauma, because like you said, we are talking about um, rarer events. So I think the, you know, surveying all, all these different institutions, and I did fill it out on behalf of Wilmer, uh, you know, it's really important so that we can learn and, you know, advise, po uh, you know, policy and, um, you know, law enforcement and, you know, the American Society of um, ophthalmic trauma Warren, the um, the pres current president did email law enforcement again about edu education about the use of of like we said the rubber bullets and etc. Um, we saw a case at Wilmer which was particularly devastating. This was a um, a 16 year old who went um, with his uh, mom to the pro to a protest in Washington D.C. and then was injured with a firework. So you know not not only you know I think at these events 
whether it be fireworks or, or rubber bullets or whatnot, the eye protection is critical. And that 16-year-old ended up no light perception. It's also hand. It was um, he lost his hand because of the fireworks injury. So these are devastating, and you know, like in particular in the setting of you know protesting social injustice is 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 very you know heartbreaking to see. Yeah, and I and I think from a advocacy perspective, Yoshi, this is where again, there obviously non-lethal weapons are superior to lethal weapons, but whether they're actually necessary to sort of crowd control, people have argued politically, it was very contentious, but you can't argue that there is a medical and human cost to injuries with these, even if they're quote unquote non-lethal. I totally agree. And I think the situation is probably worse than these studies make it seem to be. And this sure. is great. Um, it provides a great bird's eye view of the situation, but it is a cross-sectional survey looking at one time point. And the fact is, uh, this has been going on for longer. And, Many patients have been probably unnecessarily hurt and potentially blinded. And um, one thing that I uh, was surprised uh, here was that uh, there were a lot of orbital fractures, and that's a, a lot of force uh, required to fracture your orbit. And the other thing is um, I personally had a pediatric patient also who I took care of, uh, but they were directly referred to my clinic and bypassed the emergency room. So these kind of, those kind of patients are not captured in these numbers. And so I think we're underestimating the prevalence and the direity of the situation. I think it's likely worse than it seems. Um, and uh, I don't think we should be using vision-threatening tactics aimed at the face, and there should be better alternatives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think it'll be interesting to see. I think, like you said, this is the tip of the iceberg if, if we get more and more information. And, and Fosca, you touched on kind of an important take-home issue to tie this all together. We People need to contribute these cases. And for trauma-related studies, this one has tremendous ripple effects in terms of policy, in terms of the way protests are handled, in terms of how things you know can be handled, especially in nonviolent protests in the future. But it just in general for trauma, we need to do a better job kind of coming together for these studies for for, uh, for the future. So Fosca, I just want to mention a couple words about ASOT, what it is, and if people are interested, how they can find out more. Yes, absolutely. So the American Society of Ophthalmic Trauma um, was we. It's been about six months since we restarted it. Um, previously, it was the American Society of Ocular Trauma, um, which was a, it had become defunct for a number of years. So again, with um, with lots of um, interest, uh, interested people from different from the military, from academic institutions to private practices, we restarted the um, organization. And um, Jim Arn is the current president. And um, Yoshi is a um, very active member as well. And then um, Yoshi mentioned Grant Justin, who was really integral in starting it. So um, it's really um, a great organization. Um, you can check out the website at basot.com. We have an annual meeting coming up in the spring. Our first, our first meeting will be virtual. Um, and so please join us in the effort um, to sort of prevent um, tr and think about uh, management practice patterns, um, treatment strategies, and ocular and ophthalmic trauma, and sort of ed education advocacy. And it is a multi-specialty organization because, as we know, trauma, um, you know, is it really crosses um, from oculoplastic to retina to cornea to the comprehensive ophthalmologist to frontline providers is really, you know, relevant things for all of us because we see these injuries and they're devastating for patients. So I think uh, please join us um, and join our society. I couldn't have said it better myself because I know much less about the ASOT 
than you do, and you're much more eloquent than I am. But I am excited, along with our listeners, to learn more about ASOT. Uh, Yoshi, you also you're the one who brought this to attention, so thank you uh, for bringing up this idea. I think this is a great idea to come together to talk about these papers. Uh, Kim, thanks as well for joining us. Fosco, of course, thank you. Uh, Yoshi, any final words on ASOT since you were the one who helped bring this crew together for this podcast? Oh, no. Um, all the credit goes to uh, Grant Justin, and he's kind of like an energizer buddy. And, um, you know, just keep an eye out for this guy. He's going to do amazing things. And the society as well. I'm really looking forward to all the things that we can accomplish. So, uh, Jay, thank you for featuring trauma uh, as a as a theme for your podcast, I think it's something that all of us are very passionate about because we all take care of very complex, interesting trauma patients. But I think we just have to talk about it more on forums at the society level, also. Sure, and I think for 2021, it's important for the podcast to branch out and talk about trauma beyond uh, making fun of Ajay Kurian uh, for being a Knicks fan. So, uh, guys, thanks so much uh, for joining. Um, Fasika, you so much. Kim, Yashoshi, happy so much. holidays. We're recording this before the turn of the year, but this will be going up in 2021. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Good night. Good night. As always, you can find this episode and many other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 276 episodes, including this one, are found there, sorted by category and searchable, going back for four plus years since we started back in November 2016. Remember, you can find us on our, your mobile device in the Apple Podcast or Android Podcast Store. Uh, we're searching just Retina Podcast. It will pop up there. I subscribe there, and that's how I get updates as the episodes come out. You can also subscribe via our mailing list on the website. Uh, there's a little entry to enter your email, so you get emails every time an episode comes out. Remember that we love feedback, and you can reach us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, at Retina Podcast, or by emailing us directly at retinapodcast.gmail.com. Many thanks to Drs. Yonakawa, Loretta, and Tran for joining me for this episode. Thanks to Drs. Angela Chang, Louis Kai, and Mike Benacasa for prepping this episode in the associated social media. Thanks to our listeners. Thank you for all the patients you take care of, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.